Please open, <clears throat> my turned on, there we are. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 3. And <clears throat> I know Dave has prayed eloquently, but I'd like, I'd like to lead us in prayer one more time. We have a lot of people on vacation this morning. I can tell by looking out at the crowd. It's a good time to be on vacation. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your son Jesus. And Father, we come to you, I and the people listening, and we confess to you our poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's us this morning. We are poor. Father, we cannot hear from you unless you help us. I cannot speak your word unless you help me. And my, the people listening cannot hear from you unless you help them. So we pray, Father, we confess to you our need and our poverty. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would sweep over us and open our ears to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start with a story that I providentially came on Chalice.com this week, and it goes like this. A wealthy man, a patron of the arts, called three artists to his side and gave each of them a simple commission. I want you to paint a picture titled Rest. Away went the three men, each to his own home, to ponder the assignment. Months later, the three returned. The first unveiled a landscape. It was a placid pool vividly reflecting the mountains that arose around it. The second unveiled an image of a farmer lying in a meadow next to a great haystack, enjoying a well-earned rest from his labor. But the third unveiled a scene of frenzy and fury, a great torrent passing over a waterfall and plunging to the ground far beneath. But leaning over the top of the cliff was a branch, and on that branch a nest, and in that nest a bird who was brooding over her chicks attending to their every need. And this the patron saw with delight was the truest portrayal of rest. This is a good picture of Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is about rest in the context of turmoil. Now 13 Psalms have a superscription. That means a little statement at the top that tells you what was going on when the Psalm was written. And this is the first Psalm with a superscription. And the superscription at Psalm 3 reads, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, that's crucial. That puts this psalm in critical context. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This, these circumstances are the waterfall in David's story. So here's the backstory. At about age 16, the prophet Samuel anoints David to be king of Israel. He's 15 or 16, somewhere in that range. Shortly thereafter, he slays Goliath. Motivated by insane jealousy, Saul, the king, persecuted David for somewhere between five and ten years. Eventually, David became king at about age 30. Prior to becoming king, David committed a grave and costly sin. He married Maaka. I, mean, I don't know how to pronounce her name. It's M-A-A-C-A-H, so I'm giving you my own pronunciation the daughter of Talmai, a foreigner. The important point is that she was not a Jewess, and that was directly contrary to God's law. She gave birth to David's third son, Absalom. 
Later, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when she conceived, David covered it up by murdering her husband, Uriah. We all know that story. The prophet Nathan then came to David and confronted him. And here's, here's what Nathan said in 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? That's strong language, despised. David probably thought, what do you mean despise God? I don't despise God. But God, that's how God saw it. When David high-handedly committed adultery and then murder, he was basically despising God. He was basically saying, God, I'm above your law. I'm above the judgments that normally follow breaking your law. And it was a statement of arrogance, and David was looking down on God. Nathan went on, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your family. Because you have despised me, there it is the second time, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, meaning out of your own family. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now David was a humble man. Nathan confronts him in front of the entire court. This is very humbling for David, but David says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is why God loved David. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, why did he say you shall not die? Because under Hebrew law, both adultery and murder were capital crimes. And so David, Nathan here is telling him, he has the word of the Lord for him. It's this, you shall not die. And because I've forgiven you. Now, a few years later, God's promised judgment began. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped Absalom's sister, Tamar. In vengeance, Absalom killed his older brother, Amnon. David disciplined Absalom, the murderer, by exiling him to the house of his maternal grandfather, the pagan king that was the father of his wife, his pagan wife. Uh, in, and uh, eventually, David brought Absalom back. But when Absalom came back, he was bitter towards his father. So filled with bitterness and selfish ambition, Absalom engineered a revolt against his father. Now, David wrote Psalm 3 while he was fleeing Jerusalem from Absalom, who was entering and occupying with an occupying army through another gate. In fulfillment of prophecy that Nathan gave, Absalom, his son, slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Sin is social. David's sin affects his concubines. David's sin affects Absalom. Our sin is never, ever confined just to us. David's wives and concubines suffer for David's sins. David was very aware of his guilt. He knew that all of this was happening because of his sin. Nevertheless, and although God is using Absalom to bring judgment on David, Absalom is not innocent. In this context, David writes Psalm 3. Psalm 1 and 2 are introductions to the book of Psalms. 
So we can say that the book of Psalms proper begins with Psalm 3. So let's open our Bibles. We're going to read Psalm 3 now with that context in mind, with that background. Verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Selah means rest. But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Think of Absalom and his armies entering Jerusalem. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. Now I think the main point is in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He opens by saying that the people are telling him, there's no salvation for you in God, David. And he concludes, salvation belongs to the Lord. In this passage, salvation is not primarily salvation from sins, although I'm sure that was included. It is salvation from stress and anxiety. It is salvation from Absalom, his son, who has betrayed him. Of this, we're going to break this psalm down to three sections. Number one, salvation doubted. The people and David's tempted to doubt that God will save him. Number second section, salvation experienced. And third, salvation pursued. So salvation doubted is in the first two verses. I'm going to read those again. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Think now of his situation. All these foes that have turned against him. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. The people have given up on David. The people are fickle. They've sided with his son Absalom. So the devil tempts David through the people. God will not save you. It's all over, David. God has turned against you. And I'm sure David's thinking, God has turned against me. Because the prophet Nathan said to me, this sword will never depart from your household. He knows that. He's remembered that. He knows that this whole thing is happening, is, being, is, a, is a byproduct of his sin. Here's how it happened. Here's how it's described in 2 Samuel 15. It's Absalom's conspiracy. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from my son Absalom. So that's the predicament David's in. The people have turned against him. David is probably buried under a mountain of condemnation. Just imagine now, put yourself in his position. We reap what we sow, Galatians chapter 6. David has despised God. Now his son Absalom despises him. So he leaves Jerusalem in disgrace. And 2 Samuel records what happened as David's leading, leaving Jerusalem. And it's, again, it's the context of this psalm. 2 Samuel 16. When David came to 
Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jirah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. What's David thinking? He's thinking, that's right, I am a man of blood. Yeah, not only am I a warrior, but I murdered Uriah in cold blood. He's thinking, God, God has sent this man to curse me. I deserve it. And the man said, Shimei says to him, the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And David's thinking, that's right. That's what the prophet said would happen. The sword would never depart from your household. Verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king. Now Zeruiah was David's older sister, and Abishai is his cousin. Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Is he cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David? Who then shall say, why have you done so? See what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not going to get after this guy because God's probably sent him to curse me. And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? for the Lord has told him to curse me. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that that Lord will repay me with good for this man's cursing this day. Now, here's the scene. At this point, David is overwhelmed with guilt. He's probably experiencing some self-pity and a strong feeling that he's unworthy of God's love and affection. He's thinking back to his sin. He's thinking back to what the prophet prophesied. And he realizes that all of this is happening because of his sin. God is bringing judgment. David is reaping what he has sowed, okay? He is sorely tempted to feel that God has rejected him. And it is true, he is unworthy. He has despised the Lord. He has high-handedly committed adultery and murder. He deserves God's judgment. So what's the application to us today? How do you respond when you know you are reaping the consequences of your sin. The devil, speaking through his people and through this man Shimei, are coming to condemn David. They are saying to him, there is no salvation for you in God. That's the reference in verse 1 and 2. When David says that, this is what he's thinking about. You are getting what you deserve, David. You are, as Shimei has said, you are a man of blood. But David... But David is an amazing man of faith. He knows God. He knows what God is like. And he knows that God has not forsaken him, even though he deserves to be forsaken. So by faith, he climbs into the nest over the waterfall. Verses 3 through 6 describe that experience. So let's look down at verse 3, please. He takes hold of God by faith. He turns to God. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, he turns from the accusation 
and the condemnation of the people, and he turns to God. But you, O Lord, I'm not going to listen to the people. I'm going to turn to you, O Lord. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Again, David knows God. He knows God's character. So despite his failings, he clings to God by faith. David refuses to live by his feelings. Instead, he lives by faith. David's confidence is in God's goodness, not his own goodness. David's confidence is in God's goodness, not his own goodness. How about you this morning? Where's your confidence? David's confidence is in God's works, not his works. David's confidence is in God's perfections, not his perfections. He knows himself. He knows what he deserves, but he knows God as well. And this is why he was the man after God's own heart. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, what's he crying aloud to God for? He's crying to God for salvation. He's not only from his son, but from the incredible stress and anxiety and guilt he's feeling at this point in time. The people don't think that God will save David from Absalom. But David thinks otherwise. He rejects the slander and the criticism of the crowds. He rejects his own feelings of unworthiness. By faith, he takes hold of God's love and he looks to God for salvation. Verse 5 and 6 are another picture of the bird sleeping in the nest over the waterfall. I find these two verses incredible. I read this story and I think, how in the world can David do this? in this set of circumstances. Look at me at verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. The thousands are the armies of Absalom coming into Jerusalem. Now David only spent two nights in the wilderness fleeing from Absalom. But this psalm tells us that he was able to sleep peacefully. Have you ever tried to sleep peacefully when you're under great stress? I remember one time when I was in the insurance business, I had an employee. Her name was Jeannie. She was one of the best employees I ever had in 25 years. This lady was sharp. She was organized. She was productive. And most importantly, my customers loved her. They really liked her. But after she'd been working for me for about three years for reasons that I could never figure out, even to this day, she began to pull back from me. I could tell something was on her mind. Something was bugging her. So I said, Jeannie, is there something on your mind? No, 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 there's nothing on my mind. And this went on for several weeks. And I remember Judy and I, uh, I couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I was starting to feel pretty stressful about it because my customers loved her. I knew if she left my office, she'd take a bunch of my customers with her. Plus that, she was just a great employee. So we had gone to Priest Lake for a weekend, and I remember how I did not enjoy the weekend because I was stressed out about Jeannie. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, we were staying in a bed and breakfast, and laying there for two hours, staring at the ceiling, stressed about my employee. Now that's the way I am. That's not the way David is here. And this was a small issue compared to me fleeing from my son. My son and his army is coming to kill me and destroy me, okay? So I, I know you've all experienced similar things. I know you've all been in, in cases, places in life where you've woken up in the middle of the night and laid there and stressed out about something. But this text says, verse 5, I lay down and slept. 
I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves all around me. So how is this possible to have this kind of peace in a circumstance like this? He is the bird in the nest over the waterfall, isn't he? Well, there's two places this kind of peace comes from. First of all, it's a fruit. And secondly, sometimes God just gives it to us supernaturally. Remember the fruit. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 are love, joy, peace. That's peace, first of all, with God. By faith, it is atoning work. But it's also peace with people, growing peace with my circumstances in life. When the prophet Nathan confronted David about his adultery and murder, he ended by telling that David that God had forgiven him. So David put his faith in the promised Messiah to come. He put his faith. He thought he really believed that God had forgiven him. And remember Psalm 51 is David's confession at this point in time where he confesses his sin and God forgives him. But David, you remember, also was a prophet. He wrote Psalm 2, which we studied two weeks ago. And in Psalm 2, he he prophesied the coming of the Messiah. He wrote Psalm 22, which explains the crucifixion in great detail. He wrote Psalm 69, which is also about the crucifixion, prophesying it. He wrote Psalm 110, which is about the ascended Christ, who's both a king and a priest. So how much he understood the Messiah, we really don't know. But we know he knew at least that much. He knew a promised Messiah was coming, coming, and he knew that promised Messiah would be descended from him. The fruit of faith, in other words. David had faith. But there's also a peace that's just a supernatural anointing that God sometimes gives us. We have a peace that surpasses understanding, Philippians 4. And we think to ourselves, how could I possibly be peaceful right now? This is God's gift. 25 years ago, I was teaching a Sunday school class at South Hill Bible before we planted this church. And there was about 100 people in the room. And I was talking about Jezebel and Elijah and their conflict in the Old Testament. And I made a statement, something to the effect that the feminist movement was kind of a reincarnation of Jezebel. And as soon as I said that, this man in the audience stood up in the group and, be, and took me on. Why are we letting this man teach this kind of heresy in this classroom? And he just went off. He was very angry. And I, you know, my initial reaction would be just to freak out. What am I going to do with this? You know, the whole room was just immediately tense, you know. And I said, God, help me. And whoosh, this peace just came. It was just like, God poured hot butter into my head, and it just went whoosh right down through me like that. And I had this supernatural peace. It was completely so. I would normally be stressed to the max, but I had no stress, and I knew instantly God was going to take care of it. So this guy finished his rant, and I just stood there and looked at him because I knew God was going to take care of it. I didn't need to say anything. And I didn't. I stood there. It was dead silence for about 30 seconds, 60 seconds. I don't remember how long. And meanwhile, I just felt this incredible peace. I thought, this is supernatural peace. This is not Bill Farley being peaceful. This is not the fruit of regular peace, Galatians 5. This is a special gift from God right now. And sure enough, the pastor was in a room, and he stood up in the back of the room, and he took the guy on and basically said, hey, Farley's doing, he's teaching the Bible. He's teaching the truth. Uh, we're not going to put up with this. And he ushered the guy out of the room. 
But that's an example of supernatural peace that sometimes God gives us. And that could be the kind of peace David was experiencing here when he said, I I laid down and slept and God heard my prayers. God saved me from my stress and anxiety. God's going to save me from my son. God's going to save me because God has promised to bring the Messiah through my descendants. So question here. Paul called this the peace that surpasses understanding, Philippians chapter 4. Love that that surpasses all knowledge, Ephesians chapter 3, and joy inexpressible and full of glory, 1 Peter chapter 1, the three fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's what heaven's going to be like, brothers and sisters. Question, where do you go for salvation or for rest or for peace when trouble comes? When the car breaks down, do you do like David, but God, and you turn to God rather than the accusation of the devil? When you get in a big fight with your spouse, when the boss hands you a pink slip, when one of your children gets really, really ill and is in the hospital, where you go for salvation says a lot about your relationship with God. Do you turn first to hobbies for refuge? Do you run to relationships for refuge? Do you pick up the phone and call your mother? Do you pick up the phone and call your best friend? Some seek peace in pills or in alcohol or in drugs. Maybe you look for peace in travel or TV or movies. Now, none of those things are bad, are they? The question is, where do you go first? You go to, you should, it should be instinctive for Christians like it is for David in verse 2, verse 3, to say, but you, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. We want to go to God first. Maybe we go to God first and we pray and we lay it before the Lord and then we watch a good movie to get our mind off of it. That's okay. But the question is, are we like David? Do we take our refuge in the Lord when trouble comes? So we've made two points. We've talked about David's temptation to to not believe that God will save him. Number two, his experience of salvation in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. And lastly, salvation pursued. He prays for justice in verse 7 and verse 8. Look down in your, Bible, in your Bibles with me. He prays, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. God answered David's prayer. He saved David. He gave David victory over Absalom and his army. Why? Because David was the man after God's own heart. Why was David the man after God's own heart? David knew that his relationship with God did not depend on his performance. It depended upon God's performance. And when I say that, the context here is adultery and murder, bad sins. I don't think anybody in here has probably committed both adultery and murder. There are probably some people in here that have committed adultery, but I don't think you've covered it up with murder. Okay, He's a bad boy. He's done really bad sin. Yet, he's, even in that context, he's able to cling to God's love by faith. He's able to go to God and beyond his emotions. He doesn't feel like God loves him. He feels like God's condemned him. But God has told him he's forgiven him. And God has told him, David, that he loves him. And God is at work. And David knows that he trusts in God's character. His faith was, again, not in David's performance. It's in God's performance. 
David's army won the battle. And despite David's pleading with his troops not to kill his son Absalom, because you can sense David's guilt, because he knows this whole thing is a God bringing judgment on his household for his own sin. So he pleads with his troops, don't kill my son Absalom, but they kill him anyway. With great joy, David is restored to his throne. So where is Christ in this story? Well, I would submit to you that Christ is pretty prominent in this story. In verse 7, David prays, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. David knows that his earthly problems are his son and his stress. But he knows he has a bigger problem than that, and that is his sin that he needs to be saved, saved from. God answers this prayer, Save me, O Lord, through the work of a different son than Absalom, one with completely different character than Absalom. Absalom turned on his father. He betrayed his father. He broke the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. He failed David. Why? Well, he couldn't forgive his father for banishing him after he murdered his brother. In addition, Absalom was crazed with selfish ambition. It drove him to seize his father's throne. And, and part of this is probably God letting David reap what he sowed when he married Absalom's mother, contrary to God's law. By the way, this is a side note, that opens a gigantic crevice in David's family. He marries one foreigner. His son Solomon marries hundreds of foreigners and eventually is, is uh, seduced away to, and ends his life worshiping the gods of Chemosh and the, the false gods of all the nations around them. We, the Bible gives us a picture that Solomon ended poorly and was not saved. Even though he wrote Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and probably Ecclesiastes. So brothers and sisters, we need more than knowledge to get into heaven, don't we? You can know the Bible, you can preach the Bible, you can read the Bible, you can be a scholar of the Bible and not know the Lord. But the point is, David's little sin became a bigger sin in his descendants. That's the way it always works with us. So David's little compromise became a big compromise. Solomon looked at his dad and said, well, my dad married a foreigner, and he got away with it. I can marry foreigners. So he marries a princess from Egypt, and it takes off from there. And it causes him all kinds of grief. Absalom was crazed with selfish ambition. God disciplined and judged David through his son's rebellion. Now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that every problem in life is a result of a specific, is, is you reaping the consequences of, of a specific sin that you committed. In this case, we know it is because the prophet Nathan told David. But in most cases, we have problems in life that are not necessarily connected to some sin we committed. Sometimes it's very traceable. Most of the time, it's not. But remember in 2 Samuel 7, which we didn't read this morning, Nathan, speaking for God, promised David another son, the Messiah. In fact, one of Christ's titles was the son of David. But he was an altogether different kind of son than Absalom. He was not bitter toward David for despising him, which he should have been. Instead, he forgave David lavishly. And unlike Absalom, he did not seek his father's throne he was not obsessed with selfish ambition. He was totally devoid of selfish ambition. He was ambitious, but his ambition was for David. It was David's happiness at my infinite expense. 
This son did the unthinkable. He took his father's sins to the cross. He propitiated his own wrath towards David. Now, the point is that David despised God. God's response was would have rightly been if David was not a believer, would have been God was angry, he was wrathful. So this son, though, goes to the cross and propitiates his father's wrath and his own wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, for David's despising him. Now talk about goodness. This son did the unthinkable. He died for his father. God was able to forgive David because David's ultimate son, the Messiah, satisfied God's justice on David's behalf. Remember, again, the crimes of adultery and murder were capital crimes. So God was able to forgive David, and Nathan was able to say to David, you will not die. Why? Because David's ultimate son would come someday and take capital punishment in David's place. He'd die on the cross in David's place. Two texts sum up how God answered David's prayer for salvation. The first is in 2 Samuel 12, which we read this morning. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your household. Four of his sons died. Bathsheba's baby died. His oldest son, Amnon, died. His third son, Absalom, died. And his fourth son, Adonijah, died. We didn't talk about Adonijah this morning. But, 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 the sword never did depart from his household. The sword eventually landed on his ultimate son, the Messiah, and put him to death figuratively on the cross. So in this terrible judgment that God pronounces on David is also this amazing mercy. The sword will never depart from your household, David. You will reap the fruit of your sin in this life, but I will send that sword to the son of David, the Messiah, eventually. He will go to the cross. The sword will strike him down, and that will secure the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, you've committed a capital crime. You're not going to die. Why? Because this son of yours is going to go to the cross and take the death penalty in your place. What do we do with that? I don't know what to do with that. I mean, here's the second text we want to read is Romans 11:22. Behold the goodness and severity of God. In this story, we see the severity of sin. All sin is a form of despising God. Whenever you commit deliberate sin, you're saying to God, God, I know better. I'm smarter than you. I know what's best for my life. I'm, I'm wiser than you. You're, you're just pond scum. Well, we would never say it like that. But that's really what we're thinking and doing. We are elevating ourselves above God. We're making ourselves God. We're making our own rules for life. And God sees that as us despising him. And that's a serious sin. And so Jesus goes to the cross and pays the ultimate price for that. And so on the cross, we see the severity of God. We see how serious sin is. And we see the amazing goodness of God. We see how good God is. We see how good God is. Brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is this. Will you reap what you sow with your sins in this life? You will. But there's always mercy in God's judgments. You're reaping. So on one, with one hand, God is allowing you to reap what you sow. On the other hand, God is working all things together for good to those who love him. 
to those who are called according to his purpose, even our sins. Maybe you've committed abortion. Maybe you've been involved in a divorce that you shouldn't have been involved in. Maybe you've had a baby out of wedlock. What, maybe you've been fired from a job because you stole money from the company. And there's all kinds of situations in life that we can feel guilty and beaten down and unworthy. And yes, we are unworthy. The cross shows us how unworthy we are. But the cross also shows us how infinitely loved we are. That's, and the cross shows us that God, yes, will pay a price for our sins in this life, but even in the midst of that, God will turn and use our sins for our good. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And all things includes our sins and our failings. Do we want to sin because of that? Heck no, sin is painful. Sin will always be painful, but we always have this hope that God is in the midst of our troubles, our travails, our sins and our weaknesses bringing good out of evil. Can you say amen? Amen. God saved David from stress and anxiety. God saved David from his enemies. But most importantly, God saved David from the effect of his sin, the wrath of God. Where do you go when trouble comes? Psalm 3 invites us to imitate David in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. Can you say that when you don't feel it? Can you take hold of that by faith when you feel just the opposite? Don't live by your feelings. Instead, put all of your faith and hope and confidence in God and his infinite goodness. We're going to show the Lord's Supper next. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. And at this meal, we renew our covenant with the Lord. What's our part of the covenant? Our part is faith and repentance. What's God's part of the covenant? God says, if you live in faith and repentance, then I will pour out the riches of my grace on you. I will protect you. I will be your God and you will be my son and daughter. I will adopt you into my family. I will watch over you. I will forgive your sins. I will provide you with food and nourishment. I will bless you and bless you and bless you. Our part is faith and repentance. So when we take the Lord's Supper, if there's anything we're not re repentant about, maybe there's some area of your life that you're withholding from God right now. Something you're afraid God wants you to do that you don't want to give to him. Or maybe some sinful habit that you're not willing to turn away from. It's not proper for you to come to the Lord's table in that condition because you're, when you come to the table, you're saying, I am Faithful to the covenant. I want to renew my covenant with the Lord, a covenant of faith and repentance. And so let's take a moment, let's bow our heads, and let's examine our consciences before we come and take, take from the Lord's Supper.